Hey, this is Jordan Lage, otherwise known as Richie Hanlon on HBO's Oz, and you're listening to the Inside Oz podcast with host Neil Thompson. And I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, it's so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, I was bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man? You just fucking ass. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, they should give you a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim, and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. And welcome once again to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. As Jordan Lage mentioned at the top of the show, I am your host Neil Thompson. I just want to say a huge thank you to Jordan Lage for that introduction. He went above and beyond what I asked of him, but yeah, massive thanks there, Jordan. Also, just before we get going with today's episode, I got a message from Mark asking why there was no homicide or nomicide last episode. To cut a long story short, while we did get a number of new faces on that episode who did appear on homicide... Nobody had made an appearance at the time of episode 3 airing, so there was no real point in doing Homicide and Homicide, as the answer would have been, no one. I mean, it's great you like playing along, Mark, but I'm going to have to just run it on a case-by-case basis, depending on what and who the episode throws at me, but thank you for getting in touch all the same. So, on to this episode, Series 2, Episode 4, Losing Your Appeal. Written as always by Tom Fontana with a teleplay by Tom Fontana and Bradford Winters, who is another member of the Winters clan to join the show and in his TV writing debut. Also making his Oz debut is director Keith Samples. In 1991, Keith founded Reicher Entertainment and worked as the company's CEO until 1997. In those years, Keith was credited as executive producer on a number of projects including the Uptown Comedy Club, A Passion to Kill, Above Suspicion, Turbulence, and the Howard Stern autobiographical picture, private parts, before leaving the role of CEO in 1997 to concentrate on writing and directing. Prior to this episode of Oz, he had just two directing credits to his name, those being an episode of Freddy's Nightmares in 1990, and the film A Smile Like Yours, for which he also holds a writing credit. Holding an 8.2 on IMDb, the episode was originally broadcast on August 3rd, 1998, a day in which it was reported that 1997's US prison population stood at 1,244,554, an increase of 5.2% from the previous year. Mexico reported a bill of $65 billion to prevent the collapse of its banking system three years earlier, and the White House played down the possibility of President Bill Clinton reversing previous statements and admitting to having an affair with Monica Lewinsky when he testifies to a grand jury on August 17th. Brandy and Monica were still number one in the US chart with The Boy Is Mine, The Beastie Boys held the number one spot in the album charts with their Hello Nasty album, while over in the UK, the Spice Girls' Viva Forever was the top-selling single, and Jane McDonald was at the summit with her self-titled debut in the album charts. So it's over to Augustus to tell us what he thinks the best story ever told is. Some people say the Bible is the greatest story ever told. Uh Uh-uh. 
the best story is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. <laughs> yeah. Boy meets girl. That first moment when every corpuscle in your dick is percolating. Of course, not everybody has the same impulse. So Act 1 gets underway with Richie Hanlon heading into his pod, where Mac and a couple of other Aryans are waiting for him. Richie tells them to get off his bunk, but Mac wants him to suck his dick. Richie again tells them to leave, Mac saying what does it matter, before Richie hits back with, I suck the dick I wanna suck, so fuck you. Mac tells him that he shouldn't be talking to him that way as Richie fights back, getting a punch in on Mac before being restrained by the other goons. Diane comes around the corner and knocks on the glass asking if there's a problem, saving Richie momentarily, before another fight breaks out across M-City which distracts her attention. Because of this, Mac and his posse are able to put a beating on Richie, and he tells Richie that he's going to end up the same way as Vogel, saying that it was he and Schillinger that carried out the kill, before demanding Richie suck his dick. And while we don't see it happen, it's obvious that Richie is the victim of oral rape. Instead, we get Richie's crime flashback in which he is on a street corner doing some drugs with another man, who takes a bump of a substance from Richie's hand. The man overdoses and falls to the floor, foaming at the mouth. So if we're playing real-world timeline, Richie was convicted in June 98, only two months previous, so he's still very much a new inmate at Oz. The leather jacket he's wearing in his crime flashback also has the flag of the city of Chicago on it, designed in 1917 by Wallace Rice as part of a design competition. It could just be a patch on a jacket, or possibly hinting to Richie being from Chicago rather than the New York area. As I mentioned briefly last episode, Richie Hanlon is played by Jordan Lidge. Born February 17th, 1963 in Palo Alto, California, Lidge studied acting under David Mamet and William H. Macy from 1981 to 1985, as part of attaining his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Drama at New York University. As suggested by Mamet, Lidge, along with his fellow classmates, founded the Atlantic Theatre Company, located in Chelsea, Manhattan. In 1985, the company would stage David Mamet plays The Blue Hour and Yes But So What, both directed by Clark Gregg and Wallace Shawn's The Hotel Play. Lidge made his off-Broadway debut as part of the play Boy's Life, directed by William H. Macy. After a stint back in regional theatre, Lidge and Macy would work together again off-Broadway in 1991's Three Sisters and 1997's The Joy of Going Somewhere Definite. In 1992, Lidge made his Broadway debut as part of a 1992 national tour of A Few Good Men, directed by Don Scardino. In addition to his theatre work, Lidge had a number of small TV and film roles, starting in 1988 in the movies Things Change, 1991's Homicide, not to be confused with Homicide Life on the Street, and 1997's The Spanish Prisoner, as well as episodes of New York Undercover, On 7th Avenue, and Trinity before appearing here on Oz. We go back to M-City where Richie is making his way up the stairs and is approached by Freaky, played by Terry Sapico. You might recognise Terry Sapico as he has appeared on Oz previously, playing Rebido's stab victim from his crime flashback. Freaky says hi before asking if he is next, Richie asking him what he means by that as Freaky says that he saw what he was doing with Mac and wondering if he was next. Richie gets mad and pushes Freaky, who falls over the railing to the floor below landing in a heap and seemingly dying instantly. He lands near the Italians who were playing cards at a table, and Chucky looks particularly put out by the interruption. He must have been on a hot streak, or at least had a good hand. So not only has Terry Sapico appeared on those twice, he also has the unfortunate honour of having been killed both times. 
the likelihood of someone falling to their death in a real prison would be low, certainly in a maximum security prison as higher levels would have safety measures put in place to prevent people falling over railings or jumping from them. Guards hold the inmates back as the alarm sounds and everyone is saying Richie did it on purpose as we go to McManus's office where Richie is pleading his case, saying that Freaky was coming onto him and that he was pushing him away. McManus tells Richie that he's going to be charged with murder, which I'm assuming is purely to keep the story moving along, as ordinarily there would have to be an investigation into what happened. He motions for a guard to take Richie away, but Richie asks if he gives McManus some information, what sort of deal can he get in return? McManus tells him that depends on the information, and Richie tells him that the information is on the Vogel murder, and if he can get a lesser charge if he shares what he knows. Cut to Leo back in the interview room with Schillinger once again, saying that this time he has proof that Schillinger killed Vogel, and that Mac has confessed and told another prisoner that it was them that did it together. Schillinger calls it horseshit and scoffs at a jailhouse confession being Leo's evidence. He says that Mac will deny it and that it's their word over whoever the jabber is. Leo says that Mac is in the other room confessing, but Schillinger once again calls it horseshit and that even if Mac was confessing, does Leo really think that he would admit to him that he killed Vogel and give Leo the satisfaction? Leo says no before telling a guard to take Schillinger away. You can see that he's annoyed because he clearly knows that Schillinger and the Brotherhood did it, but he hasn't got any real evidence to make the charges stick. We go down to the hall where Richie is being held and he is approached by a menacing guard, Officer Karl Metzger. And oh my god, it's only Patrick Starr. Oh! Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Officer Karl Metzger. Absorbent in yellow and porous is he? Officer Karl Metzger. If nautical nonsense be something you wish. Officer Karl Metzger. Then drop on the deck and flop like a fish. Officer Karl Metzger. 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 So Officer Karl Metzger here, played by Bill Fagerbacky, most famous for playing Patrick Starr in Spongebob Squarepants. While that show doesn't start for another year, I couldn't not mention it here, considering the polar opposites of the character he's playing here to what Patrick Starr is. Metzger offers Richie an ultimatum which might spare him from the Brotherhood. Listen up and listen good. Some friends of mine are very upset that you tried to pin a certain murder on them. For that, you're a dead man. Christ. However, they're offering you an alternative. Since you're already in here for one killing, they suggest you also confess to Alexander Vogel's murder. Take your chances with the court. At best, you get life. At worst, you get the death penalty. If you get life, my friends will let you live. If not, you're a dead man anyway. So choose. Delton, I don't want to see him. I have a confession to make. So in addition to throwing their weight around in M-City, the Brotherhood also seem to have an ally in a crooked guard, so it would seem they're on their way back to regaining some power. Schillinger and Leo exchange glances in the hallway, but Leo says nothing before Schillinger leaves with a big smile on his face to close the scene. 
We transition to Augustus taking a shower, and when I was re-watching this episode, I noticed that we seem to move from story to story at quite a pace compared to normal. I normally like to refer to things in terms of it being act whatever, but this episode chops and changes all the time as we get a whole bunch of different stories going on and we don't tend to stay with any one story for too long. We're only 7 minutes into the episode, which included around 90 seconds of opening credits, and we're already wrapping up one story. The Oz universe is expanding constantly with new characters and new alliances are being formed, new feuds are developing. So rather than having one character pivot the entire show like it looked like it was going to happen with Beecher early on, we have this steady revolving door of plots. Saeed approaches Augustus and tells him that it's almost time for their hearing. But Augustus seems to have been in a world of his own, and he tells Saeed that he was thinking about how he might be leaving Oz if everything goes to plan, and mentions about being at home with his wife, having a beer, and watching the Yankees and the Orioles on TV. He would have been disappointed when he put his TV on that night though, because the Yankees were in fact on the other side of the country playing the Oakland Athletics that night, and wouldn't play the Baltimore Orioles until September 18th. While it seems such a throwaway line, it says so much about Augustus. Despite having been in Oz for three years at this point, he doesn't have any long list of things he wants to do if he gets released. He just wants to do normal things like watching sport and drink a beer. Granted, we saw him have a minor relapse into drugs early on, but he has always come across as likeable and seems to be quite down to earth and hasn't had his psyche completely broken by his time in Oz. We move to the library where Augustus Hearing is being held and we see our guest star for the episode, Elaine Stritch, playing the part of Judge Grace Lima. Born February 2nd, 1925 in Detroit, Michigan, Elaine was the youngest of three girls from a well-off Roman Catholic family. She made her stage debut in 1944, and her Broadway debut just two years later in the show Loco, which was closely followed by a run in Made in Heaven later that year, and Angel's Wings in 1947, a review show in which she performed songs and comedy sketches. Other Broadway appearances included Call Me Madam in 1950, Pal Joey in 1952, 1962's Sail Away, and Company in 1971, both of which included nominations for a Tony Award. Following the successful run of Company on Broadway, Elaine moved to London, England, and in 1972 appeared in the West End production of the show. In 1973, she married her husband, John Bay, as well as appearing in the West End production of Small Craft Warnings and The Gingerbread Lady the following year. In addition to her extensive theatre career, Elaine also had a long career on television, beginning in 1949 in American sitcom The Growing Pains, as well as appearing in the Goodyear Television Playhouse between 1953 and 1955. Whilst living in England, Elaine appeared in the British comedy Two's Company, a show which proved very popular in the UK and ran for four series until 1979. That same year, Elaine and her co-star Sir Donald Sindon were both nominated for a BAFTA TV award in the Best Light Entertainment Performance category, losing out to Ronnie Barker. Following the death of her husband in 1982, Elaine returned to the US and won her first primetime Emmy in 1993, following an appearance in Law and Order, before returning to the stage, her most successful turns being in a one-night-only performance of Company in 1993 and Showboat in 1994. In 1996, Elaine was again nominated for a Tony Award for her appearance in the revival of the Edward Albee play, The Delicate Balance. Judge Lima allows Saeed to make his opening statements, in which he mentions Judge Kibler from the previous episode. As he does this, we see another appearance of the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X poster that I mentioned back in the first series. And the way that is framed, it's like both men are watching over Saeed's shoulder, symbolic of Saeed seeing himself as a modern-day version of the two men. The case for the defence is also heard, in which they claim that the lack of bribes being given does not indicate bias, and makes the case that Augustus and Saeed need to show what is known as the actuality of bias, not just the implication. 
The defence mentions that Augustus murdered a police officer in cold blood, which Saeed objects to, but the defence says that that has a direct bearing on the sentence, and Judge Lima overrules. The way she says overruled too and stares at Saeed, you get the feeling that there has been a lot of objecting and overruling going on, it's just that we haven't seen it all. Saeed finishes his opening statement by once again claiming that Augustus wasn't given a fair trial, and that he is entitled to, as he puts it, an automatic reversal of his conviction. I'm still not convinced that's how it works, but we'll go with it for argument's sake. The defence, however, says there is no precedent for an automatic reversal having happened, and to do so would in fact create a rule of law that is beyond the jurisdiction of the hearing. This type of hearing is available to Augustus and Saeed through what is known as filing a writ, and is usually used where an appeal is not an option. Augustus would have had 30 days to launch an appeal when he was convicted at trial. Obviously, this is three years on from that, so his appeal will have been exhausted. A writ may be filed if the verdict in the trial court was based on injustice, as Saeed is claiming here, or error beyond the court's immediate control. Saeed calls Augustus as his first witness, and we see Augustus swearing on the Bible to tell the truth. It's not written in law that you have to swear on the Bible, it's more that it's just a tradition to do so as US court operations are descended from old English customs when the English colonised the US in the 1600s. The theory behind it was that a liar would be willing to lie in court, but lying after swearing on the Bible would consign your soul to go to hell. These days, an affirmation of truth before testifying in court is all that's required, but you can swear on a Bible, or any other religious text, or a comic book, or anything else for that matter. Or you can swear on nothing at all, as it isn't mandatory anywhere. We go back to M-City, where Rebida, Boost Malice and Beecher are playing cards, and Augustus comes over to join them. Oz seems to be a great place to perfect your poker face, as there seems to be a lot of card games going on. And I'm just going to get this out of the way now. That hat makes Boost Miley's look like he should be driving a steam train. We do see him wearing a hat more often than not, but this one was something else. They ask how Augustus is doing, but he says that it's too early to tell and admits that Fortunata, the defence, is tough but good. Beecher asks him how Saeed managed, and Augustus confirms that Saeed did get overruled a lot. And you get the feeling he is regretting letting Saeed defend him. He also says that he's more nervous than he was at his first trial, and Ribado puts it excellently about how back then, Augustus hadn't seen the inside of a prison and that incarceration was merely a concept, whereas now he knows the reality and the price of a verdict going against him. Fantastic stuff from Ribado. Saeed comes over and tells Augustus that they need a smoking gun, that being somebody that was asked to give a bribe but didn't, and as a result was sentenced unfairly. Ribado and Beecher ask how they plan on finding that person, or if they even exist, Beecher liken it to finding a needle in a haystack, leading to Saeed to say that the quickest way to find the needle would be to burn the haystack, which makes for a cool soundbite if nothing else. We see Saeed printing off a list of names in the computer room on some very old school printing paper, the kind that had the punched holes on either side, and he goes to talk with Augustus again. He shows him the list of names, murderers sentenced by Kibler, and says that if they can prove that one of them didn't offer a bribe, then they can prove bias. Augustus tells him that they haven't got time to contact them and that they should have thought of that a week ago. This is evidence that a lawyer with any shred of credibility would have thought to do at the start of the process, not part way through. It's not quite Lionel Hutt's level of incompetency, but it's not far off. Saeed goes to see Leah to ask about being able to call the men on the list. We've already told you, no special phone privileges. Well, let me use the facts to contact the men on the list. No. You think I'm going to help you turn this prison into the people's court? You win this one, you'll be reopening the case of every prisoner in here. And is that wrong? To strive for justice? Justice? Crooked judge or not, Hill shot a cop. 
As Saeed is escorted out, he tells Leo that he is never going to stop helping his brothers fight for freedom. Which is noble of Saeed, but he seems to be the only person that doesn't recognise that he isn't that good at defending anyone. Every time he gets mentioned that Augustus shot a cop, which he did, he either has no answer, like here with Leo, or he gets angry, like he did at the hearing. He heads back to M-City to talk with Augustus again, who this time has joined the card game with the rest of the others. Saeed tells him that Leo said no again, but he is going to contact his publisher and get them to contact the lawyers on the list of men. But Augustus tells him that that is going to take time, and that is something they haven't got. And Augustus seems to have accepted his fate at this point. He knows that the case they've put forward isn't good enough. Saeed says that if they don't win, he'll appeal on the grounds that Judge Lima ruled against them because of racism. Which is absolute bullshit from Saeed. You didn't give me what I want, so therefore you're a racist. Absolute shite. Augustus has had enough and tells Saeed that his objections are stupid, and that he isn't as good as a lawyer as he thinks he is. Saeed then asks if Augustus wants to replace him with Beecher to take up our cause, but Augustus tells him that it's not our cause, it's his life, and that he isn't Saeed and doesn't want to be a martyr or a saint. All he wants is to be free and says that Saeed can either do that or leave him the fuck alone. Harold is great in this scene, and Augustus calling Saeed out on his bullshit hammered home his desperation to get out of Oz. Saeed is a very charismatic man, and Augustus even said last episode that with Saeed doing the talking, he'd be an idiot not to keep his mouth shut. But here we get the moment where Augustus realises that he's been led up the garden path. You also wonder why he didn't ask Beecher in the first place. While it's been mentioned before that Beecher was involved in litigation rather than criminal law, I'm sure he would have been willing to help Augustus if he'd asked. Even though Beecher has been going through some changes and had his own issues to deal with, he's still a good person deep down. Back at the hearing and Judge Lima is about to give her verdict. She asks if anyone has any questions, naturally Saeed does, and she tells him to make it snappy as she needs to get home and it's rush hour. Saeed says that due to he and Augustus being prisoners they haven't had the resources to gain further evidence. Lima saying that is duly noted, and Saeed then says that they may not know what Judge Kibler thought of Augustus, but they have a clear picture of what he thought about justice. Like I say, Saeed has a certain charisma and a way with words, like a moment ago with the needle in a haystack comment. But the way that he speaks, as I mentioned before, almost like talking in sound bites, are just masking that he isn't a very good lawyer and would instead probably make for a good car salesman. While he can say something very profound, he is clearly lacking in other areas needed to be credible. Judge Lima then delivers her verdict. To the state's argument that because there is no precedent for reversing the conviction, that this court would be ruling beyond its jurisdiction, I say bunk. How do precedents become precedents unless some judge sets one? However, the state's view that the defendant must show more than the appearance of bias rings true. I have reviewed the transcript of Mr. Hill's trial thoroughly. At no point did Judge Kibler, in word or deed, act beyond the limits of the rules of judicial procedure. And the sentencing, given the severity of the convictions, does not appear to be unduly cruel or unusual. Therefore, I rule in favor of the state and deny Augustus Hill's motion for a reversal of his conviction. Cut to a corridor as Saeed is saying to Augustus not to lose faith and that this is only the beginning. 
but Augustus is telling him no and that he can't handle it anymore and that it's the hope that he can't handle and he feels like it is crushing him. Said says that hope is all that they have but Augustus counters saying that all he has is ours as he makes his way back into M-City and we close out Act 1 on a shot of Said and a guard and it would be remiss of me not to mention that guard's moustache. Just look at that thing. It's creepy yet fantastic at the same time. Hope. Hope is all we have. No. All I have is ours. Act 2 gets underway in the classroom and Poet is asking if he can read something that he's just finished writing. He reads his piece but Kenny is sat across from him and seems a bit agitated and bored. Poet continues his piece, but Kenny has an outburst and the two of them nearly come to blows. Luckily, McManus is passing by and manages to intervene before anything can escalate. He threatens Kenny with a move back to Genpop before the class is dismissed, leaving McManus and Kashin alone in the classroom. Kashin says that Kenny needs an attitude realignment and that he was doing really well, but McManus is telling him that it's because he's making Kenny come to class and that Adebisi is giving him some heat. He asks about how Poet is getting on and then gives Kashin a tape recorder. Yes, a tape recorder, that's how we used to do things. And he asks Kashin to record five or six poems and get it back to him. Kashin asks him why, McManus just saying that he has a plan. Cut to McManus' office where he has had Saeed brought to him. He tells Saeed that he's read his book about the riot, Saeed jokingly saying that McManus might want his autograph. McManus says that he wants to talk about Poet and hands Saeed some transcripts of Poet's work, and says that he wants Saeed to contact his publisher and talk to them about the poems. Said slams the transcripts down on the desk, chuckles sarcastically, and asks McManus about the first time they met and how McManus told him his celebrity status wouldn't give him any extra advantages, and how he reminded him of that last week, and says that now McManus is taking advantage of his status. McManus tells him that this isn't about him, it's about Poet and his future, but Said thinks this is also about McManus, his education programme, and the press coverage that will receive, and how McManus will look like a hero as a result. But Manus tells him that he has the opportunity to help a fellow inmate, which is basically a slap in Saeed's face, telling him that he failed in helping Augustus. But Saeed says that he doesn't need advice on how to help anyone, and we get another Terry Kinney trademark bullshit moment. Look, could we just put aside all the bullshit between us for once? As Saeed begrudgingly says that he'll help McManus this one time. Poet heads under the stairs to score some drugs from Adebisi and Kenny, but they refuse, saying that Poet hasn't paid for weeks and tell him to fuck off. Kenny even tells him, go write something, Dubois, meaning that he has learnt something in class after all, and even manages to pronounce it correctly and use it in context. So, well done, Kenny. Poet walks off, passing Saeed as he goes, and the two meet up later in the cafeteria. Saeed tells Poet how he has beaten the odds in Oz by managing to hold on to his gift, and that he has spoken to his publisher, and they are interested in Poet's work. They sit down at a table and Poet gets some rubbish insults aimed at him from some of their inmates. And Kenny throws a bread roll and hits Poet on the head. It was a good shot, I'll give him that. Poet gets up to confront him, but Saeed manages to calm him down, before breaking out his book of sound bites again, telling Poet that he has a responsibility and a calling. But Poet tells him not to give him any of that bullshit and tell him what to do. Saeed tells him to do nothing, except trust him. So after being somewhat apprehensive at first, and after his attempt at getting Augustus to go free has failed, Said has moved on to a new project and seems to have embraced helping Poet, and the prospect of being able to elevate his own status in the process. Even though it's potentially great for Poet, it's massively hypocritical of Said after saying that McManus just wants to look like a hero when that's exactly what he's doing also, and we're always questioning what his true motives are. 
poet comes over to Saeed, holding a letter, and tells Saeed that he has been published. So out of nowhere, we've had a little bit of a time jump here, and it's not made clear how long that is. I'm not saying there needs to be an X weeks later caption every time, but like I say, this just came out of nowhere. It's a little difficult to get used to. Sometimes the story will play out over the course of a few days, while other points skip entire weeks or even months at a time, depending what's going on with the characters involved. We then see that Saeed has been stood there talking to McManus, and he seems to have appeared out of absolutely nowhere too. Saeed tells McManus that Poet has been published in a book called Unheard America, and has been given a featured appearance, and Poet seems to have been given some sort of payment for his work. Poet heads into the laundry room to see Adebisi, who at first doesn't have his hat on, probably washing it, but then puts it on in one smooth motion, an angle that defies logic. So the mystery of how he keeps the hat on his head continues. Poet shows him two $20 bills and says, tip me. Adebisi asks him where he got the money, and Poet tells him about getting published. Naturally, Adebisi sees this as some sort of get-rich-quick scheme, and asks Poet to teach him to write poetry, and that he wants to write rhymes about Nigeria. Poet tells him that nothing rhymes with Nigeria, and they both take a hit of drugs. A few minutes later, they're both walking through M-City, both absolutely smashed out of their trees, but they do seem to have found some words that rhyme with Nigeria, specifically cafeteria. Other words they could have had include listeria, hysteria, criteria, diphtheria, wisteria, bacteria, latimeria, and if you're really good at countdown or scrabble, the 14-letter word archibacteria would score big for you depending where it was on the board. They head up to Adebisi's pod, who along the way drops the towel he had on, leaving him wearing nothing but his hat. Adewali apparently had a habit of randomly getting naked on set, so maybe this was improvised, maybe it wasn't. They pass Saeed on the way, who looks pissed off that Poet has resorted to taking drugs again. He heads up to confront Poet in his pod, and says that he has seen Adebisi destroy others with his own self-destruction. But Poet insists they were just doing their laundry, as Saeed just looks at him with a disappointed scowl. Poet calls Saeed clean and righteous, but says that he has demons clawing at him. Saeed says he has demons too, but they can't take him down, and he tells Poet he must learn to fight them with his will, and that is the shield of Allah. He places his hand over Poet's heart, telling him that this is his reality, which Poet calls bullshit, but Saeed tells Poet that he needs to believe and that he has rallied a group of writers to call for Poet's parole, and that they are going to turn him into a symbol of justice, using his poetry to rise like a phoenix from the crack house. Again, Saeed showing himself to be quite the wordsmith, and he seems to get Poet to buy into the idea, as we see a news report echoing what Saeed has said about writers calling for Poet to have a parole review. The other inmates watching seem to give a mixed response, seem some happy for Poet, while others, mainly Kenny, seem annoyed at the idea, as we close out Act 2. A symbol. Me. Shit. A crowd yeah. has gathered outside Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary in growing support for Arnold Jackson, an inmate whose poetry has fomented a movement of writers and artists demanding that he be granted a parole review. The campaign to free Mr. Jackson started with Foster Perry, the publisher of an upcoming anthology of marginal literature titled Unheard America. Many critics are saying this is a commercial ploy to create a sensation around the book, but several figures in the arts have committed their efforts to Mr. Jackson's piece, claiming he is a rare talent lost inside our country's barbaric prison system. Fuck. 
Act 3 begins with Augustus narrating about how what comes after boy meets girl, and how people eventually get driven crazy as we go to the hospital, where Ryan is laying in bed talking to Gloria about how great it is to not have any work detail or guards hassle him, and he even says there's an upside to dying. Ryan's hair seems to have grown a bit since last episode too, and Augustus in the next scene even mentions that Ryan has been in the hospital for a long time. Gloria tells Ryan that he isn't dying and the surgery was a success, the breast tissue was removed, and his chemotherapy is now doing the rest of the work. He asks about the likelihood of the cancer coming back, and Gloria tells him 90% are still alive after 5 years, and 63% after 10 years. Ryan says that he's up for parole in 11 years, and it would be just his luck to get released and then have the tumour come back, so he doesn't seem to have lost his wit through all of this. Gloria reassures him that he is young and otherwise healthy, and that he'll be okay. Ryan goes over the sink to wash his face and goes to brush some hair behind his ear, but a clump comes out in his hand. He pulls at another area of his hair and another clump comes out. He looks over to the side and sees a shaving razor, which surely shouldn't just be left lying around in a prison, and goes to shave his hair, starting at the sideburns. Hair loss through chemotherapy can be a common side effect, and it occurs due to the follicles being weakened by the radiation used in the treatment, and can affect hair all over the body, not just the scalp. It can happen quite quickly after treatment has started, sometimes as early as 7 days. But once treatment has finished, a patient's hair will start to grow back, although it may take anything from 6 to 12 months to grow back completely. These scenes of Ryan going through his cancer diagnosis and treatment have been interesting to watch. He's usually very cunning and manages to stay one step ahead of everybody with his schemes, but this is something he has no control over, and it's interesting to see how he reacts. We cut back to M-City where Ribado and Augustus are talking about Ryan coming back, and we get the line from Augustus about Ryan being gone a long time. Augustus says it must be something bad to keep him out of M-City for so long, so it looks like the news of Ryan's cancer hasn't filtered down to the inmates yet. Except for Ribado, of course, who says that he's heard that Ryan has been to Benchley Memorial, and is now going through chemo. Ryan then slowly makes his way through M-City, and even though Ribado is kind of aware of what's happened, he still has a bit of a shocked expression when he sees Ryan, which is understandable as Ryan looks completely different to when they will have seen him last. Everybody else is staring at Ryan, except for Beecher who has the courtesy to look down to the ground. Ryan makes his way up the stairs, using both hands on the railing to pull himself up, and he heads into his pod where Timmy is on the top bunk reading. He asks Timmy what he's staring at, Timmy trying to act like he isn't doing so, and he tells him to get out. Ryan looks at himself in the mirror and then vomits into the toilet. Maybe Ryan was trying to exaggerate his condition a little upon returning to M-City. Obviously, his new look is quite striking, but Gloria made it clear that he was healthy, so the way that he uses both hands to make his way up the stairs, maybe he was projecting that his condition was worse than it is and that he is in a weakened state. While he will have seen the change when using the razor, the realisation hits home of what would have happened if he had just let his hair fall out. Let me know what you think, it would be interesting to see what you guys took from it. Cut to Ryan talking with Shibeta in the kitchen, saying that he wants to return to work in there. Shibeta tells him no, but Ryan says that he isn't fucking around, before Chucky, with all the subtlety of a brick in the face, tells Ryan, he said forget about it, cancer boy, and then laughs in Ryan's face, and he even high-fives with Shibeta as he leaves. As we've seen so far from him with how he is very loose with his use of racist language, and how he reacted to an inmate falling to their death earlier on, it's safe to say that Chucky is a right dickhead. Ryan is approached by a bald inmate, who is Wick, played by Chaz Menendez, and he asks Ryan if he is trying to look like them, and that people have been wondering about what is actually wrong with Ryan, one such speculation being that Ryan had testicular cancer, and that he has had his testicles removed. 
but Wick says that can't be true because Ryan never had any to begin with. Ryan then hits Wick with a plastic tray, which doesn't sound like much, but I bet if you took a good shot in the face with one of them, it'll really hurt, and they both brawl to the floor. Guards are in quickly to break up the fight, and Ryan is taken to McManus' office, where he meets with McManus and Gloria. Another rules already. You get in the fight, you go to the hall. So send me to the fucking hall. I've been there before. I ain't afraid. Yeah, well, in your condition, you know, you're likely to get a cold, then you die, and then I got a shitload of paperwork to do. Haha, <laughs> it's funny. Look, Ryan, you've got six weeks of chemo left. Okay, so we decided you can stay in the ward until then. Take him to the hospital. So Ryan is off back to the hospital, all the while he seems to be falling more and more for Gloria. While she is doing whatever she can to support him, he is coming down with a serious case of Florence Nightingale syndrome, misreading little smiles and the times that she's holding his hand as something they may not be. And this harkens back to what Augustus was saying in his monologue at the start of the act. They head out of M-City together and we get a weird synthesizer that we've never heard before. It seems really out of place with the music that we're used to. In the hospital, Ryan is looking through one of those kids' toys where you look through the eye holes and it has different pictures of animals, as Gloria makes her way over and asks how he's doing. He tells her that ever since they went for the surgery, all that he can think about is being outside, and how he misses the things that he can't do in ours. She asks him what kind of things he means, and what he misses the most. Ryan says that he misses kissing most, which Gloria tries to spin into meaning something about Ryan missing his wife, but he says that he misses affection of any type, and tells her about how when she took his hand just before the operation, the heat of her skin made him have a feeling. He says that he wants to touch and kiss Gloria, and she isn't exactly pulling away at any pace, so she seems to have some feeling for Ryan too. She does eventually leave, but she does seem to have opened a Pandora's box. Gloria goes to the staff room to try and get her head straight, and she completely fails to notice Sister Pete sitting at the table. Pete asks her what's wrong as Gloria tries to brush it off, but Pete is persistent and gets Gloria to open up. She talks about how at med school, the one thing that gets drilled into them is that doctors don't show emotion, to keep their distance, and don't get involved with a patient. Pete asks her who the patient in question is, and Gloria tells her about Ryan, admitting that she is attracted to him and his bullshit Irish charm, as Pete says that he also has breast cancer. Gloria then opens up about how breast cancer runs in her family, and that she's likely to get it at some point, and because of that, she knows what Ryan is going through. Pete tells her that isn't love, it's empathy, and encourages Gloria to go home to her husband, who she seems to have reconciled with as they were separated at the start of the show, and to stomp her feelings for Ryan into the ground because there will be trouble if she doesn't. Sister Pete during this episode and the series so far has had pretty limited screen time, but every time she appears she is always memorable and she is absolutely on the money here with the advice she is giving Gloria. She's by far the most likeable character out of all the staff. Back in the hospital and Gloria is examining Ryan's surgery scar. She asks him about his nausea and fatigue, but Ryan asks her to kiss him. She tells him no, but he grabs her by the arm and tells her, you know what I know, and you feel what I feel, and then forcefully kisses her. While not quite immediate, she does push Ryan away and asks a guard to take him back to M-City. She throws her gloves down on the bed, realising that she's got herself into a right mess. Cut to night time, and we finish Ryan's portion of the episode with him doing the five-knuckle shuffle, as Augustus sings some lyrics from the song Queer by Garbage. I had a friend in school who absolutely loved Garbage. She was fucking obsessed with them. I haven't heard anything of Garbage for years, but turns out they are still around. 
While this song is from their self-titled debut album, at the time of airing, Garbage had put out their second album, version 2.0, a couple of months previously. And while it peaked at number 13 on the album chart in the US, it was number one in the UK. Next up, we have Rebido trying to have a pee in his pod while also having a cheeky look at Boost Mallet's hole. Hang on, that doesn't sound right. Next up, we have Rebido trying to have a pee in his pod while also looking at the hole Boost Mallet's is digging. Before Boost Mallet's enters the pod, seemingly upset that Rebido is peeing, and he has to wait his turn. It's daft little bits like this that add some much-needed comic relief to the show, especially coming out of the Ryan breast cancer storyline. Rebido asks if Boost Mallet's is serious about digging his way out of Oz and Boost Malice tells him about how he once dug into a bank vault with walls 20 feet underground, which may have been the one we saw in his crime flashback, or it could have been a different bank entirely. Rebido asks him about the offer to go with him, which I don't recall happening on screen, and says if two people dig, they'll get the job done faster, and tells Boost Malice about how he used to be an architect, which explains the blueprints in his flashback. All this talk of escaping seems to be exactly what Rebido needed as he finally manages to pee. We, however, cut to William Giles in solitary, and he is once again being visited by Sister Pete. He's still saying very little, just saying the same as last time, as well as still repeating Sister Pete's name. She tries to make sense of the words that Giles is telling her, but he gets extremely angry and is close to a guard restraining him, but Sister Pete settles the situation, saying they have all the time that he needs. Giles then continually says the word street, and Sister Pete adds it to her list as we close out the scene. Like I said before, some very quick moving from story to story in this episode. McManus Council of Inmates, which sounds like a great name for a rock band, meet in the library and Kashin is making a case for starting it with a prayer, which as you can imagine is greeted with general indifference from everybody else. Adabizi puts his hat on Ryan's head seen as a now both bald, and that was pretty funny. Kashin tries to get support for the prayer from Saeed, but he says that a prayer is meaningless if no one means it, all the while Miguel just wants to talk about sex and bringing conjugals back. Mamana says that he's working on it, but he's got a long way to go. Shibeta raises an issue about hygiene, with someone off camera saying, Yeah, the beasy, who then asks if Shibeta wants to bathe him, and he once again calls him Little Nino. Shibeta spits on the floor saying, There's your fucking bath right there, and the meeting quickly descends into petty squabbling, leaving McManus to bring it to an abrupt ending. Later in the day, Shibeta is playing a card game in his pod, seeing as that's all anybody seems to be doing with their downtime, as Chucky brings Miguel up for a meeting. Miguel. Yo. Sit. Oh, I ain't staying too long. You and me, we, uh, got a lot in common. I don't think so. Well, we both have Latin blood and we both pedal tits. Me, I'm strictly a street drug guy. Heroin, marijuana, you, because you work in the prison hospital, you sell pharmaceuticals. So, I'm thinking we should combine. Mm. No thanks. I'm willing to divide the pie 60-40. You know, I make a shitload more than you. Why you want to be so generous with me, man? I want that to be see dead. Do I, do I look like a mook to you? Huh? You offering me 60-40 and all I got to do is kill Adebisi. Shit. Why don't you have him do it? Huh? Everyone knows I hate Adebisi. He turns up dead and no one suspects you. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Now I tell you what you're thinking. You're thinking if Spit kills the Kokoro, they end up at war. No offense. No offense. But drop fucking dead. A Kokoro, which Miguel references, is a term used in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean referring to African descendants and originated in the Dominican Republic. 
It can also be used to refer to people who identify with Afro-Latino culture, and is often a term used with pride, but can be taken as an insult when used by other races. Later on in the cafeteria, Adebisi tells Miguel that he's been thinking, which Miguel sarcastically says must be a new experience, which was a great little line. Adebisi offers to do business with Miguel, who says that it must be his lucky day. So you've got Shibeta who wants Adebisi dead and vice versa, and both are trying to rope Miguel into doing it for each other. Adebisi then says that neither Shibeta or Miguel have any balls, and he throws some food onto Miguel's tray. All the while he's doing this creepy little dance where he's just gyrating his hips, it's really unsettling. Miguel gets questioned by his fellow Latino about Adebisi disrespecting him, but Miguel tells him that both Shibeta and Adebisi are close to killing each other, and that they should just pull up some chairs and let everything play out, and then pick the pieces of what's left. This new gang member is Chico Aguera, played by Otto Sanchez. He's a bit of a background character at this point in the series, but he becomes a bit more prominent in Series 3, so we'll see more of him going forward. Nighttime falls over M-City and we get a stare down between Shibeta and Adebisi, who is just standing at his pod door in his pants still doing his little dance. Adebisi has had his Walkman on this whole episode too, I'd love to know what he listens to. Miguel is looking on as well and he's wearing the longest pair of boxer shorts I've ever seen. They're practically down to his knees. He whispers to himself before heading to bed to close out Act 3. Come on, boys. Be all that you can be. Act 4 gets underway with Augustus telling us variations of the boy meets girl story formula, and that in Oz there is always boy meets boy and we get the crime flashback of, OH MY GOD, HE'S HERE, HE'S HERE, YES! Prisoner number 98K514, Christopher Keller, convicted June 16th, 98. Felony murder, two counts attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon. Robbery, driving while under the influence, reckless driving. Sentence, 88 years. Up for parole, in 50. So Diane heads into Augustus and Beecher's pod and tells Augustus to gather his things as he's been moved to another pod because McManus wants to keep mixing things up and doesn't want anyone becoming too attached. I can see the logic behind this as it forces interaction between the different gangs, but it can also easily be a plan that can quickly backfire. Beecher asks who is going to be moving in with him, Diane telling him it'll be the new guy. And with that we go to the holding area where Beecher is introduced as the sponsor to Christopher Keller. So Beecher has gone full circle since coming to Oz. We've seen him enter the prison as a new inmate with his own sponsor, and now after everything that he's endured, he is now being thrust into a position to help another newbie acclimatise to Oz. For those of you who have watched the show before, I know there are a lot of you who have been waiting for Chris Keller to show up, and you know how big of a moment this is in the show. Christopher Keller is played here by Christopher Maloney. Born April 2nd, 1961 in Washington, D.C., Maloney moved with his family to Alexandria, Virginia, where he attended St. Stephen's School, now known as St. Stephen's and St. Agnes School. Very much the popular high school jock with his piercing blue eyes and boatloads of charisma, Maloney played quarterback for the school football team before attending the University of Colorado at Boulder, where he initially majored in acting before graduating with a degree in history in 1983. After graduating, Maloney moved to New York and continued his acting studies at the Neighbourhood Playhouse, as well as the Centre for the Media Arts. Whilst working to earn his big break in acting, Maloney worked a number of jobs, including being a bartender and bouncer, a personal trainer, and a construction worker. 
as well as appearing in a number of TV commercials for companies such as Quick Hamburgers, Slice, McDonald's, and Head & Shoulders. Following a blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearance on The Equalizer in 1988, Maloney got his first recurring acting role the following year, when he joined the cast of the sixth season of First and Ten The Championship, before starring in the short-lived NBC sitcom The Finelli Boys. From 1991 to 1993, Maloney provided voiceover work for the character of Spike on ABC's Dinosaurs, which I fucking loved as a kid. Very fond memories of watching that. In 1994, Maloney earned his first film credits, appearing in Clean Slate and Junior, the film where Arnold Schwarzenegger undergoes a male pregnancy experiment. Maloney's career started to build momentum following his appearance in 1996's Bound where he played the hot-headed son of a Mafia Don, as well as appearances in Money Talks and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, as well as on TV in Misery Loves Company, NYPD Blue, Leaving LA, and Brooklyn South. So Beecher and Keller are introduced, and we see that Keller is sporting a cast on his right forearm and wrist, most likely from the fall he took off the motorbike in his crime flashback. And without trying to sound like a pretentious media student, I like the binary opposition of having Beecher in a black shirt, commonly used to identify the bad guys, while Keller is in a white shirt, illustrating his purity and possible naivety. They head into their pod and Keller asks if Beecher is a fag or not. I just want to say at this point, I don't mean any offence to anybody when I use that word or any other potentially offensive language that is used in the show. I'm only using those words because that is what is used in the episode and I'm merely quoting for the purposes of reviewing the show. I do try and clean it up wherever I can, but sometimes I just need to quote the characters directly, as sometimes those uses of those words are integral to what that says about that character. Beecher tells Keller that he isn't, and then asks if Keller is one, Keller saying that he does what he has to, before Beecher recites another nursery rhyme, this time a variation of Hogs in the Garden from 1825, exchanging the hogs for rats. This gimmick that Beecher seems to have created for himself, I don't know if it's something that he just does as a sort of defence mechanism so that other inmates leave him alone because they see him as being the crazy guy that talks in nursery rhymes, or if it's just another part of this descent into madness that he seems to be on since he fought back against Schillinger. We see Beecher using the phone as Keller waits in the queue before he is confronted by Mac, seemingly the self-appointed guard of the phone booth door, who asks Keller if he's the new prag and tells him that it'll cost him $10 to use the phone. Keller gives him a, oh really? before backhanding Mac in the face with his cast. A scuffle breaks out and Beecher comes to Keller's aid, as Mac says that Keller broke his nose, and Diane comes over to break things up. She takes Mac down to the infirmary as Keller thanks Beecher and tells him that he owes him. Beecher says that he didn't do it for Keller, he did it because he hates the Aryans. This phone booth scene also acts as somewhat of a callback to when Beecher first came to Oz and was bullied out of the line by Markstrom, only Dino wasn't so quick to come to Beecher's aid. Beecher is brought to McManus' office and I have a particular fondness for this scene because I can remember watching this episode on DVD when I used to live at home and my mum, who isn't a fan of strong language, walked into the room right when Beecher starts to talk. Come in, Beecher. Sit down. The other day before Hill's hearing, I met Judge Grace Lima. Oh, really? How is the cunt? She asked about you. The cunt put me in here. The cunt gave me the toughest sentence possible. She asked if she could come and see you. What a cunt. You know, my trial lasted 28 days. And every single one of those days, I had to stare up at that cunt's face while she banged her cunt gavel 
and instructed the jury to fuck me over. I didn't have a choice. I had to see the cunt. Now, I don't have to. Yes, you do. You gonna force me? Yes. Why? Because I think it'll be therapeutic. Ultimately, you'll thank me. You know what? You're a cunt, too. So for those keeping score and wondering about the scale of how horrified my mother was, eight times. Eight times, he said it. Beecher meets with McManus and Judge Lima in Leo's office. She thanks Beecher for taking the time to see her, Beecher saying it's a nice break from being fucked up the arse. McManus tells him to pack it in, but Judge Lima is unfazed and tells Beecher he can speak freely. Lima says that she's been a judge for 16 years and made over 2,500 decisions, and that most of them were good but only one of them has haunted her, and that's the decision she made about Beecher. She says that she's always prided herself on being fair, but with Kathy Rockwell's crying parents in the courthouse and Beecher being a lawyer and his prior arrest for DUI, which I don't recall having been mentioned before, the overall senselessness of everything caught up with her, and she isn't sure if she gave Beecher a fair trial, and that having seen what Beecher has become, that maybe the punishment exceeded the crime. I would have thought that Beecher having a DUI would have meant he was disbarred, but the law differs from state to state. It would also depend if he got his DUI before becoming a lawyer or not, as while there are no guarantees, you can still become a licensed attorney even with a single DUI. Lima attempts to say that she is sorry, but hesitates, as Beecher says that she used her power to crush him, but the truth is that he did kill that young girl, no matter how much he tried to manipulate the system. He says that each crime carries a certain number of years, and she gave him the maximum of 15 years, and that he doesn't know if that was too harsh or not enough, and that while she may be haunted, he is too. He finishes by saying if she came to ask for forgiveness, then she came to the wrong man, and that man ceased to exist the day Kathy Rockwell died, and he goes to leave. And as he does, he sarcastically tells McManus that this was very therapeutic. And Lima finishes the scene saying sorry once Beecher has left the room. I thought Lee Turgeson was great in this scene, much in the same way that he was when talking with Sister Pete about killing Kathy back in episode 6. When Lee is given the chance to have an uninterrupted piece of dialogue, he can be really good. We cut to nighttime where Beecher is having a nightmare in which he envisions Judge Lima banging her gavel, and we also see the incident where he hits Kathy with his car. Just gonna throw this out there, and this is in no way condoning Beecher driving whilst drunk. She does come round that corner pretty fucking quick. In addition to Beecher reliving Kathy hitting his windscreen, he also visualises himself as being the one hit with the car before waking up screaming. Keller tries to calm him down, but Beecher tells him to keep his hands off and calls Keller a faggot. Keller says, alright, before laying back down in bed to let Beecher compose himself, as we see Keller close his eyes with a suspicious smile on his face. Cut to the next day in the showers, and yep, there is Christopher Maloney's penis. People tend to talk about Oz having a lot of full frontal nudity, but I don't think there's as much as people make out. That tattoo on Maloney's left arm is his real tattoo, it's done in the cubism style and depicts the crucifixion of Christ. Keller has to shower with a big plastic bag on his hand too, so that he doesn't get his cast wet. It doesn't play into the scene much, but I just thought it looked funny. Beecher comes into the shower and apologises for the night before, and they have to talk like this because they're having to talk over running water. It's really distracting. I once read something from a sound engineer about dubbing an additional dialogue recording, commonly known as ADR. He wrote, Not all speech in film is dubbed. 
On a normal static film set, you can generally record the sync dialogue pretty well, and a dialogue editor will clean it up afterwards, and that'll be what you hear in the final release. Where you hear a lot of ADR is in location shoots, particularly outdoor locations. If there's just too much wind or background noise, then the lines will get dubbed, also known as looping. Bear in mind though that it's not cheap to re-record, so on smaller films and most TV they'll just make do. Action movies with lots of running, guns etc will definitely require extensive dubbing. What's less well known is that all the other sound besides the dialogue is added afterwards, so often the speech is the only bit that is real. Every footstep, door, sip of coffee, all the way up to the more obvious explosions, spaceships, cars and so on. So in the case here, with Oz having such a tight budget, Lee Tergerson and Chris Maloney are having to perform their lines over the noise of the running water from the shower. As things have moved on since the late 90s and with bigger budgets and so on, had Oz been made today this scene would have been shot for the visual of the characters, but the dialogue and the sound of the water will have been added in afterwards. There are ways they could have got around having the actors to talk over the water, but having Keller naked talking to Beecher is an important piece of his character, as he's essentially showing Beecher that what you see is what you get, and he has nothing to hide. Keller tells Beecher to forget about the night before, saying that he's had his fair share of nightmares, and reaffirms that he owes Beecher for what happened the other day by the phones. He says he and Beecher are not like the rest of the inmates. They're out there with their dick swinging in the wind, and they should be able to rely on and trust each other. Beecher tells him that it's hard for him to trust someone, Keller says that it's the same for himself, but they have a long time together, and says let's see what happens. Beecher reluctantly accepts Keller's offer before continuing to shower as Keller leaves. Later in the day, Keller is in the gym doing some weight training when Mac and Schillinger come in. Mac is sporting a big comedy bandage on his nose and he's pissed off at Keller, but Schillinger holds him back and tells Mac to go work it off, before asking how goes Operation Turby, with Keller saying, it'll take some time, but don't worry, sooner or later Beecher will be mine. So we get the reveal of what Schillinger was referring to last episode about making Beecher suffer, and see as well that Keller is not what he seems. We get one final scene of Timmy Kirk sweeping the floor outside Shirley Bellinger's cell on death row, where she lifts up her gown showing Timmy her pubic hair, and we then see Shirley's crime flashback, but I will talk more about that on the next episode. I really like that they're drip-feeding information about Shirley. Last episode we found out that she's to be executed, this episode we see a crime flashback. It's building this character really well. Augustus questions what makes us want to fuck someone to close out the episode. Boy meets girl, boy gets laid. What makes us want to fuck somebody? Is it the color of their eyes, the shape of their legs, the spike of their heels? Or is it what the poets tell us? That there's something deeper, a shared loss, a longing to find someone who knows the depth of our sadness. Some people search their whole lives for that someone. Some find them, some don't. Some fool themselves into believing they're in love. And in ours, most times, the illusion is better than reality. So there you have it, Series 2, Episode 4, Losing Your Appeal. A bit of a mixed bag this one, I felt. It's by no means a bad episode, but there was just something holding it back from being on the same level as the previous episode, which I really enjoyed. 
like I say, that doesn't make this one bad, not by any stretch, and there are some really good performances here, and we get the long-awaited introduction of Chris Keller, which is going to have massive consequences down the line. Saeed continues to fight his crusade, using some folks along the way to do so. Lee Tergerson puts in one of his best performances to date, showing Beecher to be a changed man. And Ryan returns to M-City dealing with the aftermath of his surgery, and the news making its way around the rest of the inmates. With regards to the death toll, we had one death in this episode, that being Freaky, who plummeted to his death after being pushed over the railing by Richie Hanlon. Terry Sapika, having been killed twice on the show playing different characters, continued to work as an actor with recurring roles in 100 Center Street and Rescue Me, playing the part of Cousin Eddie in the show's second season onwards, before landing a leading role in Army Wives on ABC, appearing in 108 episodes as Colonel Frank Sherwood. Terry also appeared in four episodes of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, playing different roles in each episode. Since 2015, Terry has starred in The Inspectors on CBS, and in 2017 appeared in seven episodes of Designated Survivor on ABC, and two episodes of Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. Also leaving the show is area mailroom clerk Frank Manhard, played by Frank Senger. Senger's credits post-Oz include bit parts in Mickey Blue Eyes in 1999, Don't Explain in 2002, Frank the Rat in 2009, and Friends in Romans in 2014 before passing away in New York City on April 15th, 2016. The guest starring Elaine Stritch, who put in a great turn as Judge Grace Lima, returned to the stage in 2001 with her autobiographical one-woman show, Elaine Stritch at Liberty, which premiered at the Public Theatre in New York and saw Elaine tell personal anecdotes interspersed with show tunes, including The Ladies Who Lunch and Civilization, which Elaine originated on the Broadway stage in Company and Angels in the Wings, respectively. The following year, the show transferred to the Broadway stage at the Neil Simon Theatre and ran for 69 performances from February 21st to May 26th before going on regional and international tours. The show received rave reviews and was recognised with the 2002 Tony Award for Best Special Theatrical Event, as well as two Desk Drama Awards for Outstanding Solo Performance and Outstanding Book of a Musical. The show also earned Elaine her second Primetime Emmy Award and an OFTA Television Award in 2004. In 2007, Elaine would win her third Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series for 30 Rock, playing the part of Colleen Donaghy, a role which she would play a number of times on the show until 2012. Elaine's final run on the Broadway stage occurred in 2010, appearing in A Little Night Music, in which she was a replacement for Angela Lansbury. Elaine Stritch passed away in her sleep on July 17, 2014, aged 89 at her home in Birmingham, Michigan. As for the episode MVP... Yes, Tim McManus' streak of episode MVP awards has come to an end. He wasn't in this episode enough to warrant consideration, I'm afraid. When he was on screen, he was fine, but just not enough of him this time round to extend to three in a row. And while Judge Grace Lima was great, I'm going to give the award to Augustus. The way that he handled himself following the hearing not going his way was commendable. While he realised that he had made a mistake allowing Saeed to fight his case, he accepted the outcome with humility and didn't make any excuses. So for those reasons, Augustus takes the MVP award this time around. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, 
or wherever you get your podcasts from. The entire Series 1 is there, as well as what we have covered in Series 2 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by giving it a 5-star review wherever you can. I've had a couple of those on iTunes recently. It really helps the show gain exposure, and if you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we will be looking at Series 2, Episode 5, Family Business, where Leo and Shibeta's relationship takes a turn, Poet gets some big news, and we also get a couple of returns. All of that and more on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. See you later, everyone! Hey, boy, take a look at me Let me dirty up your mind I'll strip away your heart veneer and see what I can find. Cut to night time and we finish with Ryan's portion of the episode with him making his bald man cry. Shaking hands with Dr. Winky. Tugging the slug. Windsurfing on Mount Baldy. Debugging his hard drive. Badgering the witness. Celebrating Palm Sunday. Choking the bishop. Liquidating the inventory. Jerking the gherkin. Paging Dr. Jack off. Shuffling his iPod. Fighting the Cyclops. Hunting the Red October. Adjusting his antenna. Burping the baby. Defrosting the fridge. Enjoying a white knuckle ride. Saying hi to his monster. Hanging with Rosie Palm and her five daughters. Holding his sausage hostage. Nulling the void. Leading the lamb to the slaughter. Performing a manual override. Scratching Yoda behind the ears. Reading Friction Fiction. Wanking.